Welcome to Repro's Fight Back, a podcast on all things repro. I'm your host, Jenny Wetter, and each episode I will be taking you to the front lines of the escalating fight over our sexual and reproductive health and rights at home and abroad. Each episode I will be speaking with leaders who are fighting to protect our reproductive health and rights to ensure that no one's reproductive health depends on where they live. It's time for Repro's to fight back. Welcome to Repro's Fight Back. On this week's episode, we are going to talk queering repro. Helping me dig into this topic, I'm super excited to have Candace Bonterio from the National LGBTQ Task Force here to talk with me today. Welcome, Candace. Yay, thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. I'm excited. I'm super excited. So, reproductive health, rights and justice, and LGBTQ are often talked about separately, but are they actually separate things? Not at all. There is a lot of mythology out there that they're separate, and the movements even sometimes see themselves as separate, but we're really fighting for the same thing, right? Like, we're fighting for bodily autonomy, the ability to parent the kids that, you know, we have, or the ability to become pregnant, the, the ability to have the families of our choosing without governmental intrusion mm-hmm. and societal oppression and stigmatization, and really just living for the freedom to be who we are and to reach our full potential. It's the same thing that the reproductive health rights and justice movements are trying to achieve is the same thing that LGBTQ liberation is really trying to achieve. We just might go about it in different ways, depending Mm -hmm. on the, the person that we're centering. Absolutely. And I think also really important is we're also tend to be fighting the same battles with the same people. Huh? Yes. Right? <laughs> yes. It is this. So we are fighting the same battles, especially if you look at specific policies. We are fighting the same members of Congress, mm-hmm. um, the same media folks who are attacking reproductive health rights and justice advocates are attacking LGBTQ advocates. We have the same opposition in conservative religious Mm-hmm. Um, voices and media and congregations are the same congregations who are fighting against um, our congregations of faith. And we have always had the same opposition. It's really just the mentality of this old world puritanical thinking uh-huh. of what families should look like, who should be in a family, what gender roles are, what social norms are. We're still fighting the same things that, you know, we were fighting in the 1700s in America. So why should LGBTQ people care about repro? For the same reason that you care about LGBTQ liberation. Um, because in order to be fully liberated, you have to be able to decide what to do with your own body and what family looks like for you and what pregnancy looks like for you. And those are all really important aspects of self-actualization. And if you can't decide that, how liberated are you? So we need, we really need freedom of reproductive choice in order to achieve the LGBTQ free lifestyle and liberation we really want. Absolutely. I think, you know, one of those places that really starts is seeing inclusive programs. Mm. And, you know, I don't know about you, but when I think back to sex ed I was given in uh, school, and I don't know if I've mentioned this before on the podcast, but um, 
I went through K-8 to a Catholic school, so mm. I actually had sex ed from a nun. So mine was, um, one, not at all in any form comprehensive, but it definitely was not LGBT, LGBTQ positive mm-hmm. or inclusive at all. Or sex and, positive for right, anyone. Yep, right. no, absolutely. So um, I think that's one place that, you know, you see some states are doing it better um, than others, but that's one place I think really needs to start. Yeah, it's really interesting that you mentioned that because we are actually starting to do a sex ed program. Oh, great. The task force. We're super excited about it. We've worked in the sex ed space for a while, but we actually are putting together this year-long project where we're really focusing on Michigan and doing um, sex education that's LGBT inclusive in Detroit specifically. Oh, so I'm great. Like super excited about it. But so my situation is similar, like my background similar. I went to a private non-denominational Christian school um, from third grade through senior year. And guess what? I got no sex ed. And sex ed was abstinence until mm-hmm. marriage. Absolutely. And we, so we were told we didn't need sex education because oh. once we were going to get married, once we were engaged, we would obviously go through marriage counseling and the marriage counselor is supposed to provide you with sex ed which also is interesting because i didn't go through marriage counseling um and i don't think that they're supposed to give you sex ed i I have never heard that as a part of marriage counseling um, so that was, that's the story that we were told that abstinence only yes. the whole, you know, mean girls. Oh, I thought so I was like, going to say, mine ed. was definitely the mean girls. Yep. You're going to have sex and you're going to die. Yep. You're going to get chlamydia Look and you're going to die. Yes. yes. So that was pretty much, that was like one day of sex. Ed. If you can call that, that wasn't right. sex ed. That no. was just like scaring you yes. into scared straight like yeah yeah and like there was no mention sex. of queerness or um any other type mm-hmm. of union other than hetero so yeah. i don't think so i'm trying to think if it was negative but i think when i would have had sex i would have been like early 90s so like it might not have even just been talked about yeah it just wasn't talked about yeah at all like it wasn't even like a possible thing mm-hmm. At the time of, uh, so it was, so you, you know, people my age, I just turned 30 and so I had never really had sex ed. Right. Right. Um, and so that's another thing that the task force wants to do is to create a curriculum for adult sex ed. That's so important. Because I actually never had it. Yeah. And like some of the things that you hear about now more, like bringing consent into and like making healthy decisions are just things that I never got. Yeah. They're foreign, right? Yeah. They're just so just not in our normative cultural vernacular. Like we just don't learn it. No. At all. So then I switched to a public school in uh, high school. Lucky you. <laughs> well, a, so I grew up in Wisconsin. Okay. Uh, and so it was a rural high school, uh, very white. Gotcha. Very uh, Christian, and there was no diversity of any sort. So I have a friend who has since come out, but like it did not feel like a space where anybody who was LGBTQ could have come out. Like mm-hmm. it just wasn't uh, that kind of space. And, you know, I just felt really bad because, like, 
when he did finally come out after, like, he just kind of dropped everybody because Mm -hmm. it wasn't, didn't seem like something you could do back home. And, um, you know, again, without having it as part of that conversation, you don't have an opportunity to create that safe space. Yeah, I completely understand. And it completely resonates with me Mm -hmm. to this day. I mean, I don't even, I had talked to two people from my high school, but I also went to a really small high school where I graduated with 45 people. Ooh, 90. Oh, yeah. So saying that you are still in contact with two is still like, oh, that's like, you know, 10%. So that's pretty good. But yeah, there was no space for anything that wasn't quote-unquote normative. Right. So, you know, even with that, so we talk about making sure sex ed is inclusive. You know, another space that uh, LGBTQ kind of gets left out or focused on in the wrong way is with HIV. Mm. Um, You know, you'll hear a lot of focus around men having sex with men, but you don't necessarily hear a fuller conversation around LGBT and HIV. Yes. Yes, yes. (laughs) And... It's so, like, male-centric, the Mm -hmm. conversation around um, HIV in this country, anyways. In other countries, it's completely different. Right. You know, how the U.S. looks at other countries, especially African countries, it's all female-focused. Right. And then, like, not male-focused at all. So, which is fascinating to me. Um, And for someone, I don't do um, a lot of international health or international repro work, um, but I see that difference is right. completely fascinating. And I constantly wonder if it's just a result of the country that you're in. Is it, a, is it an American percept, like perception of, you know, what's happening here versus there? Um, just centering men in general. Yeah. But either, anyways, I think that the conversation around HIV AIDS is particularly problematic when it's really focused, A, only on prevention mm-hmm. and not on treatment and um, treatment with, you know, living and thriving yeah. and um, living with HIV is also not talked about a lot. Um, it's always just this, like, prevention, 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 which is highly stigmatizing, right? Like, that's it's a terrible way to talk about... HIV, it's, it's, I mean, one thing that's similar is probably talking about, like, teen pregnancy prevention. Right. It's like, if you're just talking about prevention, 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 what are you saying to people who are end up having an unplanned pregnancy mm-hmm. or who end up having a wanted pregnancy? Right. Um, so I think that there's a problem of the prevention treatment framing and model and the what is actually the end goal for various advocacy groups working in those spaces, I think is really important to think about and think about before working with certain groups. Mm-hmm. But I do think that sometimes it just gets so queered that we too often leave out people who have the ability to contract HIV and we're not even talking about prevention for everyone, right? Like there's not an inequality to talking about prevention and treatment. Um, I really love the work that's done by 
um, Positive Women's Network. Okay. In they're out in California, and it's an organization that works for and works with and is run by positive women who have HIV, and they're doing this amazing work around destigmatizing it and like how to live a healthy life, like how this is just one part of your life, right? It's like one part of your story. And, you know, how you still have the autonomy to have kids, what it means to have kids um, and be positive. And it's just, I feel like that's a liberating model um, that other groups to really think about following. That's um, interesting because, you know, I work a little more in the international Mm -hmm. uh, sphere. So I feel like often, particularly coming from U.S. funding context or Mm -hmm. U.S. work, the focus is almost reverse, right? It's a lot more focus on treatment and dropping a lot of the prevention, particularly under the current administration. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's interesting to hear the focus in the U.S. is so much more on prevention and less on treatment. Well, at least I will say that is the, the conversation that's mm-hmm. happening. And I'm not a def- I'm definitely not an HIV expert. Me either. By any means. But that's the conversation that we're having as activists mm-hmm. in the both LGBTQ and repro space. Yeah, and I think, you know, it also feeds into thinking about birth control. I think, mm-hmm. you, again, you kind of see that woman, straight, vagina-having, woman-centric yep. frame and not broadening it to think about kind of the full spectrum of people who may need birth control. Right, and who may, or who may need access to abortion, mm-hmm. right? Like, it's all the same. Yeah. Um, we just are so stuck in this dual-gendered dichotomy that we can't like society has not yet caught up to the reality that it's about people's bodies right like every body is different and it can't be categorized in particular ways um which ends up causing a lot of problems when you know you're a gender non-conforming person needing an abortion and your driver's license is one thing, your health insurance is another thing, and you're just trying to get a procedure done. Right. And there's all these stipulations and all of this red tape that you have to go through. Finding a doctor yep. who is welcoming and not stigmatizing. Yep. And right now we have, you know, the protection of Section 1557 under the Affordable Care Act, which is the non-discrimination provision, really preventing physicians insurers from discriminating against people based against patients based on their gender identity and you know we're in fear that that is something that could be tampered with under this current administration um so we're constantly on the lookout for ways that they're trying to chip away at that prote- protection um, or a way to confuse that protection because it's really, really simple, explicit that you can't discriminate. I mean, it just yeah. seems so basic. You should yeah. be able to access the healthcare you need, no matter who you are. Yeah, I mean, I healthcare is a human right, right? Yeah. Like it is, but are there are two different aisles here in our country that believe differently? You know, for some, healthcare is a privilege that you, if you have the ability to afford it, have access to it. And if you don't have the ability yeah. to afford it, well, sorry, you should have done something to get access to it, right? Like, that's this thought yeah. process that's going on in um, half of our members of Congress's minds. 
which is just so problematic. And sometimes I'm like, I cannot believe that it's 2018 and we're still Still talking about healthcare being a human right. And before the Trump administration started, we were on this, you know, upswing. We were like, we're going to finally like really consecrate this as something that everyone has. We're seeing and less people uninsured. Right. We're and like, then, we're going to work on these amazing issues. Yeah. We're going to move fat, like move, get rid of Hyde. We're going to, you know, implement the Each Woman Act in the next couple years. We're going to do all these things. And then the Trump administration mm-hmm. happened. And now we're back to like fighting of what it even means to have health care. Yeah. Like we're back to square one, um, which is devastating. <laughs> So devastating. I laugh instead of cry. I know. And, you know, and this isn't even, this is like before we even get to like religious refusals. Yeah. There's so many layers. There's so many layers. So, you know, people don't have access to healthcare for insurance reasons. And so that's even before doctors have the ability to say, actually, I don't believe, I don't want to treat LGBTQ people or I don't want to treat, provide abortion or birth control or whatever, um, which puts up a whole nother barrier to access basic health care. Yeah. And I mean, we know that, uh, and I'm sure you said on the podcast, how many barriers there are already to getting Absolutely. an abortion in this country, even though it's a constitutionally protected right, um, how difficult it actually is to obtain an abortion. But the fact that there are so many barriers that don't require any type of referral for a physician who doesn't want to, you know, be involved in an abortion for whatever reason, for religious reason, there's no requirement that they refer. There's no even notification requirement in a lot of these provisions in a lot of states to tell a patient that I'm actually not going to notify you that this is an option. Yeah. That's like what's so scary and devastating to me. I agree. I find that one particularly. To choose to go somewhere else because you don't even know it's an option, right? Like, and when you're having something that involves your health, you're putting your trust in that physician. Absolutely. You know, they're held to a high standard as they should be because this is a life and death field, right? Like this is not some other field where your patient can just go look for someone else yeah. or go to another pharmacy. It's not, it's a lot of these situations are life or death. Yeah, I agree. I find that one particularly egregious, like that they don't even have to tell you it's an option or can refuse to tell you that something's wrong because you might choose to get an abortion or something like that. Like I, I find that particularly mm-hmm. egregious. Yeah, it's bad. Um, you know, I think I might have talked about this on uh, the Religious Refusals podcast, but, you know, it never occurred to me that that was something doctors could do, is refuse to provide a service to anybody. Like, they're doctors. They should treat people. You would think. Um, and then when I was in college, one of my roommates was going out into a medical-related field um, and was very much like, I'm not going to treat gay people. And just oh, my being gosh. Like, Whoa, 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 whoa. This is something you can do? I, one, you believe that, but two, you can just choose not to treat people? It just was something that never crossed my mind that it was something you could do. I I didn't know that until doing this work, and I'm sure a lot of people don't know that, and 
don't know that they're not getting the best health care mm-hmm. that they could be getting because of just who their doctor is and what their doctor's beliefs about the patient or their perceptions about the patient, how much that actually comes into um, the care that they receive. It's it's wild to think about it. You know, another area that's um, still like repro, maybe a little further afield is um, talking about violence. I know Violence Against Women Act is going to be coming up for renewal sometime in the next year, I think. And violence affecting the LGBT community um, is also a major problem. Yes, yes, yes. And I feel like it's left out of the conversation a lot. Like it really focuses on violence against women, but not necessarily focusing on that that includes queer women or anything else. Yeah, so, I mean, violence is a rampant issue within the community and, you know, against the community. Yeah, absolutely. Like, uh, of experiencing just so much discrimination in society. We just released an amazing policy paper and um, policy solution paper on gun violence prevention. Oh, great. We'll make sure to include it in our show notes. Um, specifically, we just released it about a month ago that gives practical solutions oh, great. Um, that are intersectional of gun violence prevention. Because we found at the task force that you know, the gun provi- the gun violence prevention conversation was like super white, super let's just say super white. Mm-hmm. Um and you know, not inclusive of people of color, not inclusive of LGBTQ folks, didn't have a racial justice, economic justice, gender justice analysis, and was missing so many good prevention tools that we could be using. So that's what created, uh, like, gave us the desire to really create this paper uh, to show that there's just so much more out there um, and so many more intersectional, so much more intersectional research that we need to be doing in order to really prevent problems like violence and gun violence in particular but similarly with the sex ed uh, conversation we were just talking about, there it's still a very surface level conversation right. in this country, and there is there we haven't yet moved to an intersectional conversation, intersectional framing of these various issues, because you know sex ed is so important, and yet many of us don't get it or get bad information. Yeah. And it doesn't have a racial justice, gender justice, economic justice lens. And the people that end up working in the field of sex education are usually more privileged, right? Mm-hmm. Because as, a, like, my mother was more worried about me just going to school and coming home and being safe. Like, that was my primary, like, her primary concern. Yeah. Um, not necessarily, like, what my sex ed was. So I feel like not having that perspective in the policy conversations is harming the policy conversations and the policy solutions that we're coming up with. Well, I think it just shows all just, you need to focus on the intersections of all of these things. It's just so important to be having not these siloed conversations Mm -hmm. that we tend to have, right? Like I, most of my work's on repro. And so like, this is, this is my lane and I stay in it. Mm -hmm. And we need to see that all of this is related. And, you know, we've talked, I've talked about this in the podcast before where you can't just focus on 
you know, one identity. You have all of these intersecting things that need to be talked about in one conversation. Yeah, and I, I, I think one of the reasons that we haven't gotten to that place yet is how funding is set up. Yeah, absolutely. How, as some like to call it, maybe including myself, the nonprofit industrial complex, mm-hmm. right? Of how it's set up. How is funding set up? So, like a repro group, is you're only allowed to do repro work. You don't have funders from other movements. Mm-hmm. You know, like a uh, immigration group has immigration money and not money from other movements. Um, so there really needs to be a reevaluation and retooling of how funding works so that intersectional work can actually be done. Great. I think that uh, leads us to one of the next questions I had, which was, what do we need to do to ensure that LGBTQ and repro issues are talked about together instead of siloed separately? So funding is definitely one place to start. Yeah, so funding is definitely where I would start, especially... Um, if we're talking about advocates who are able to do this work, especially paid advocates, like mm-hmm. it's all about the funding, right? And who's able to get it, who has access to it, um, who has been, which organizations have been around for a longer amount of time, seem to be getting them, you know, more funding. So it's like restructuring that funding so that newer voices can come to the table. So funding is something definitely that we could work on. I also think listening is like so important. a really important thing to do and solution for a lot of our problems is to listen and be introspective and to really sit with and grapple with the big problems and big issues that we keep coming up against instead of just like, doing action instead of just going straight to action um doing more evaluating of the why the how the what next the who are we centering in our work who's the audience for our work and you know you can do this from an organizational perspective but you can do this from an individual perspective too of just taking some time to think and sometimes i so I'm a yoga teacher in training, uh-huh. and sometimes I meditate on like repro issues and where where do I want to see the world going? You know, what does liberation actually look like? Like, how often do we actually sit and think about those right. questions? Like, you know, we all say and we all have the rhetoric down about liberation and justice and equality, but like, what does that really mean to you? And what it what would liberation look like? What does it taste like? What does it smell like? Who's there? What does power look like? I think are questions that we really need to think about, be reflective about, so that they can really ground us in the work going forward instead of just like go, go, go. That leads me to think of two things as one, looking around the table and seeing who's missing, whether that's mm who you're talking to or at coalitions you're part of, making sure that you're hearing from everybody um, and pulling people to the table who need to be there, but maybe you're missing. Yep. Um, and Without to, tokenizing. Yeah, no, making <laughs> sure that people are actively included yes. in these conversations. Um, and then, you know, thinking of, like, taking the step back and thinking and meditating or just – you know, being introspective on these things, it's so hard right now because everything's on fire and there's so many things that we're having to deal with all at once. 
but it is important to take the time to like step back and think about what we're fighting for and what needs to be done and think about ways to kind of bring it all together. Yeah, but also like when has everything not been on fire? Like to be honest, like when has like I cannot think of a time in my activist life where everything wasn't on fire. Yeah. That has that's like completely separate from who's in the White House, who's in, you know, the Congress, who's in the state house. Mm-hmm who's running whatever company, like, things are always on fire. And I feel like that's something we just have not yet accepted. Like, why Like why can't we get to the place where we accept that things are going to be on fire to do this work and still take time to think about where we're going? Because stopping and thinking and being introspective and retooling is actually a really strong form of resistance in a moment like this. So I like to end the podcast with um, what can listeners do? What can what actions can listeners take to help further this conversation or to work to make sure that um, LGBTQ and Repro are coming together? Yeah, so I would my first thing would be to listen and to listen to storytellers and to listen to everyone regardless of what they can do for you. So being genuine and listening to people for who they are because everyone's an expert in their experience. And I am really here for paying storytellers, especially queer and trans storytellers, especially people who are sharing their stories for a movement or campaign specific reason um, to be able to give back um, for that emotional labor that people are giving Mm -hmm. I also think that it's really, it's just important to engage in self-care. People at my office call me the self-care guru because <laughs> I'm always talking about it um, because I think it's such a high form of resistance to take a moment and breathe and care, mm-hmm. you know, care for yourself um, because we too are the movement, right? Like I feel like sometimes I get, I get there's this distance created between me and the movement. And I'm like, I got to work for the movement. I got to work hard, work hard. And then I'm sometimes I'm like, I am the movement. Yeah. Like I need to sit down. <laughs> like I can't keep, if I don't keep going, like if I'm just constantly spinning in circles, then what, what movement am, am I, how am I contributing? Like I'm not necessarily contributing in my best way. So that's always something that I like to to say for people because I mean, it's so important. Yeah. Doing this work is hard, right? Like this work is not easy. Uh, we all come to it from various reasons. A lot of us, myself included, come to it from a place of oppression and suppression and trauma. So doing that healing work is so necessary for ourselves, for our communities, for our movement and for the future. Like what do we want to create for the future? Um, I'm here for creating black queer feminist futures and we, what we really need to do to get there is some serious thought because a lot of the tools that we've been using have got us to 2018 with Trump in the white house. So maybe it's about thinking about what other tools we should be using and coming up with creative solutions to really get about the liberation that we want. Great. Well, 
Candace, thank you so much for being here. Thank this was you. a great conversation. Um, I hope to have you on again so we can talk about a lot more issues that are facing the community. Yeah, happy to be here. Thank you so much. For more information, including show notes from this episode and previous episodes, please visit our website at reprosfightback.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at Repros Fight Back. If you like our show, please help others find it by sharing it with your friends and subscribing, rating, and reviewing us on iTunes. Thanks for listening.